everyone. I'm Joanne Berry, special educator. And I'm Dr. Candida Fink. And this is Mental Health Goes to School, where a teacher and a psychiatrist walk into a podcast. You hear a lot about teen mental health and how students struggle at school. But accurate and useful information is hard to find. Over the years, Candida and I have had many conversations and learned from each other's experiences. We realize that we need more people in such a critical conversation. Join us as we talk to and learn from educators, mental health professionals, and parents with a wide range of experiences and expertise. Morning, Joe. Good morning, Canada. How are you doing on this uh, Saturday morning? Saturday morning, leading up to the holidays, getting yeah. a little bit excited for some downtime. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Got my Christmas tree up today or last night. So, you know, feeling feeling the spirit today. Yeah. So welcome to listeners to Mental Health Goes to School. I'm Joanne Berry. I'm a special educator. And I'm Dr. Candida Fink. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And this is Mental Health Goes to School. And today we have with us uh, Dr. Jackie Springer, who is the Assistant Dean for Student Support and Advocacy Services at the University of Rhode Island. So welcome, Jackie. Thank you. Good welcome, morning. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. So I saw you uh, speak at a conference. We went to, we were at the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and I was really interested in a program you were on the panel for. Um, and one of the things we wanted to talk about today was something you guys were speaking about there, which was uh, a challenging topic a challenging situation when kids are hospitalized, when students have to be psychiatrically hospitalized, when they require that level of care, and then we're planning for return to school, how difficult that transition is and paucity of resources. So um, I think that, that was sort of my intro to you. So I guess we can sort of start there. You can tell us a little bit about what that program is, was, yeah, certainly. Um, so again, good morning, Jackie Springer, you, she, her pronouns, and real happy to be um, with y'all today. This topic is near and dear to me and has been now for about 20 years. In fact, uh, longer ago than I'd like to admit, it was one of my dissertation projects oh. before um, before folks were really taking a look at transitioning from the hospital to school as its own sort of niche area that people had to be working around. And I think we we certainly could talk about this from, from all realms, but the area that I was really focusing on um, during the presentation at the psychiatry conference was looking at this concept of school transition for teenagers. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason for the focus on that is when we sort of look at this integral four-year period Sometimes that's more than four years for students. There is some really pivotal, some very important uh, times within traditional American high school where the amount of time that a student's out of school really matters. You know, um, students who are juniors, um, particularly the beginning of that junior year, mm -hmm. 
missing even two weeks of school can can make or break um, their transition to college successfully. Right. And so we're really, really talking about how do we help our youngsters who are not well for uh-huh. any number of reasons? And how do we not only get them out of the hospital, then not only get them back to school, but help them sort of have support as well as the language needed to help them navigate going back. Um, it's, it's not enough for us to say, all right, you don't meet criteria for hospitalization anymore. Go back and do all your work. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, I think for a long time, and even now that's still quite a bit of what happens. The student isn't necessarily given support for what do I say to my peers about why I disappeared for a week or two or three. Yeah. The language, uh, the idea of the language for kids is so important. We will sometimes try to practice a script, you know, what are you going to say? Just so you don't have to think about it It can be autopilot, whatever it was that you're going to, you know, and you don't have to share with everyone, but I I love that point you made that, you know, helping kids have language for it. Yeah even beyond all the very logistical and important critical supports we need to put in place, but kids need to feel like they can, you know, be accepted back by their peers, right? That's so critical. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is something that um, at my school, we sometimes work on not, I mean, it could be for any subject that a, a student is having difficulty with why they were out or why a certain event happened or whatever their clinical support folks will try to help them develop a script, or if they're always struggling with a certain thing, develop a script. Some people think of that as cheating. It is not cheating. How, how many of yeah. us have the script? You know, when you see somebody in the right. grocery store, hey, how are you? Blah, 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 blah. It's like, that's right. automatic for most of us. It's a skill, right? It's a skill. Yeah. Right. Especially when we're talking about hard information, right? Like, what are you supposed to say? Hey, person, I see, you know, every day for an hour. Here's this really deeply personal thing that happened to me. Right. That's just not in the realm of everyday conversation. Right, right. So, so that's an excellent point. And what have you found that are the most successful types of supports to help a student transition back into school? Yeah, I I love that question. And so I would say it starts or it should start ideally before the student even goes into the hospital. So I I think when we are talking about um, a, a youngster, perhaps that is doing some sort of partial hospital program, Um, What we are seeing is it's not an imminent crisis where people were totally surprised that the student needed to go in. Usually there's been some sort of buildup that we're seeing. And if that person has some level of support, whether we're talking about it on a high school or college end, Ideally, there would be someone, a social worker, a counselor, their psychiatrist, a case manager, who can have a conversation with that youngster and or their families about what would it look like if you were to seek a higher level of care at this point in time. Let's talk about what it would mean for school. That's a really good point. And so when those conversations are able to happen, it then sets up a situation where ideally the rest of the conversation can go smoothly. Why? So we we get things out of the way like releases of information. 
right? There can be a conversation about who at the school, again, high school or college, who is going to be the person or office that this youngster and their family feels comfortable or confident in receiving this information? And is that person that they've identified someone who can help them make a plan moving forward? both while they're in the hospital and trying to figure out some transition plan. And then more importantly, when that youngster, I'm not going to say is back in school, but I'm going to say is out of the hospital because those are two different time periods. Right. So in theory, that's where it would start because the world is not perfect. Um, and we know, you know, someone is with us in the school today and we're hearing in the morning, oh, so-and-so is at the hospital. One of the most helpful things that I think we can do as teachers, as physicians, as providers, is really help these families navigate what things are needed so that these different institutions can talk. Okay, so, so sometimes it is that written release, but sometimes it's a verbal communication. Right. Sometimes it's identification of who is this person's or who is this youth treatment team comprised of? Right. What are their roles? I think we know, right, working right. in therapeutic settings, we understand the difference, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, right, the counselor, the milieu therapist. We know what these things mean. Okay. Families have no clue. They're just like, I don't know. You're someone who's supposed to help. Very true. So getting getting a firm, this is the treatment team, and this is the person in each setting that is going to communicate with the mm -hmm. other setting is where we see the best plans moving forward because that's been identified and it leaves a lot less to fall through the cracks. So, so those, those are the things, right? It doesn't even involve the student or patient at that point. It's, right. Who are the people? Who's involved right. in, in yeah. each setting and, and communication. I don't just, if there's one theme that has come across in every interview we've done, every discussion yeah. we've had, it's communication and ide specifically identifying who is involved in the communication, yes. how you make those communications, what sort of do you need to have those communications happen? Just as you're describing, I think it's so one so wonderful. I described that very specifically, and really, I hadn't even thought of this that idea of really trying to put that in play at least in some way, if you do see it in escalation and you are anticipating that, like having some planning that includes the family and the patient when possible to be yes. thinking about what that communication sort of team effort all around in patient yes. outpatient is going to look like school, right? So Absolutely. And I would say schools understand this really well if we're using the right language, right? So the concept of a multidisciplinary team, anyone who works in a school, they know what that is. They have those meetings all the time, IEP meetings, at, you know, any meeting for a youngster that's having right. a struggle. As a school psychologist, when I meet folks who are sort of struggling to put things together, I'm like, oh, you're, you're using a different word, but you're saying a multidisciplinary team. Like we have <laughs> roles, we have, like, let's identify people's jobs. If we do that, then when the hospital, again, whether we're talking inpatient, whether we're talking partial hospital, sort of decides that this youngster no longer meets criteria for hospitalization, it allows for there to be a, a smoother step down process because we, again, we all know 
that that gray area between not meeting criteria for hospitalization but being ready to go back to school is something that falls heavily on the caregivers. And I and notice I'm not saying parents. I, I spend a lot of time talking with folks about this is that we think sometimes as providers are assuming um, that if a youngster, first of all, if they are with their custodial or adoptive parents, that those are the people who are able to navigate this transition. And that's sometimes also an error. So I like to talk about who are critical family partners and are we involving them? Right. Sometimes it's a pastor. Sometimes it's a neighbor. Sometimes right. it's grandparent. The people who are going to be able to support the core unit mm-hmm. when that youngster is in that transitional space. Right. Um, and I love when the student or patient is the one who's able to identify those people. Yes. Because yep. they're comfortable and more likely to communicate with them. That's huge. Right. Yeah. Just huge. Exactly. Yeah. That transitional space, it's scary space for for the the student, I think sometimes for the school. Yeah. <laughs> right. If they're not sure often. Yes. And certainly for the care providers, you know, that those critical care providers. Everyone is feeling very unsure and unsafe. You know, not yeah. not clear on safety because hospitalization, when you've taken to the level of inpatient, it's often been a an issue of safety. And so it that feels, you know, there's that gut sense. So all these ways of trying to really provide support, plan, the, the students, you know, capacity to participate in it is huge. Uh, yes. You know, I agree. Yeah. And Candida, I remember at the presentation, you asked me a question and I don't remember what the question was, but I do remember our conversation about it. And it was sort of getting to this concept of in that area of gray, right? When you know your client's not well, but they don't meet criteria. Right. The school is also like, yeah, no, you can't come back, right, right, unless your treating provider, right, is willing to attest to the fact that you are safe, right, right. whatever that means, to be in the school space. And so what does it mean when providers who are seeing, right, a patient for 15 minutes, maybe, right, right 20 minutes is then being tasked with um, sort of the decision, Right. Um, right. For a larger body of people about this person, this human's ability, not only to be safe, but to function. Right. Right. Because you want to know both. Right. There's all that information is is presumed to be included in that that letter that they're waiting for from the from the psychiatrist. Right. Yes, absolutely. And so, Joanne, I know in the therapeutic setting, right, there's a <laughs> there's also the OK, we safely got this student into the school building, but are they ready for learning? Those are also two different things. Right. Right. So, again, when we talk about this sort of um psychiatric hospitalization to school transition, I look at the transition as having like multiple touch points where mm-hmm. we're going from like the the big, big, scary piece of, ooh, this student needs to be inpatient, right? And our goal, I think we misidentify the goal often as the goal is to get the student back in school. Right. But that's not really what we mean, right? We're, we're talking about getting the student back to a place where they're ready to learn and consume information and be able to be a successful member of that school community. And our 
we still have a lot of work to do to sort of go through all of those touch points because I feel like with as much information as we have and as much as we've learned during COVID, by and large, uh, many states due to lack of funding, lack of resources, lack of mental health providers, lack of teachers, like all the parties, we're still just vacillating between, all right, can the student be in school where someone will keep them alive? Right. Right. Or do they need to be, you know, in in a sort of lockdown setting and anything in between isn't given the the great deal of thought and care that it needs to have because people are overtaxed. Yeah. 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 Well, and then back to your point of multiple touch points when a student, maybe a student is okay to come back into school, but maybe all the teachers shouldn't jump on them and be like, you owe me all this stuff. Um, you know, uh-huh. a, a little bit more of an assessment there on, first of all, what, back to your point of, you know, junior year, if you miss a bunch of stuff, it's kind of hard to to stay up. And yes, in some classes in academic areas, that's much more important than it is in others. Mm-hmm. What are the students' goals? Think about that a little bit. And, and if they missed two or three weeks, whatever it might be, what is the most important thing for them to feel successful and competent? in that area, can we just dismiss several of these assignments? And if they can demonstrate they know the material or you can work with them a little bit to bring them up to speed. A little bit more thought around that, which I understand is difficult in a large school population, but which which of the students do you want not to succeed is kind of the way I look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Because someone's, if you ask a group of people to focus more heavily on a smaller number of students, right, someone's always getting left behind. And and that's certainly not the goal. Um, And Joanne, I'm glad you said that because you sort of jogged my memory. I think one of the questions was, are there are there successful sort of projects that we're seeing out there? Are there places that are matching this well? And one of the things that I sort of stumbled upon while I was doing my research um, for the ACAP presentation happens to be right down the street. Well, not literally, but like up the road from me. So there's something that's called the Birch Project. And it is, it's capital B-I-R-C and then lowercase h. And that the Birch Project is a collaboration between UMass Boston, Boston Children's Hospital, and UMass Amherst. And what they did, um, and they didn't, you know, they took the combination of a bunch of different um, work that was being done around the country, and they formed this sort of multi-step protocol that gets to what you're talking about, Joanne. So their touch points are as follows. Um, There's a planning meeting right off of the back. um, If someone goes, if a student goes into the hospital, they're deciding who should be on the hospital to school transition team. And they're already talking, they're saying things like, does the student have a 504 plan? Is the student on an IEP? If they aren't, you know, who is the person that can sort of help get this in place? Then there's the next step would be a a welcome back team meeting. And that team meeting is really to help all people who are involved as the touch points with that student to feel comfortable and confident in what their role is. 
Um, they then list the next next piece in this plan as the hospital to school transition plan implementation, which they consider to be a six to eight week time frame. So yeah. again, right, Sounds. this is something they're looking at over the long term. This is not a, all right, let's just wrap this up over two weeks. Right. Um, then there's three more steps after that. There's progress, a progress monitoring team meeting, and again, reconvening the hospital and the school transition teams to discuss like progress in response to interventions. Right. They then look at the hospital to school transition plan implementation and monitoring again, sort of at the end of that eight-week touch point. And then they consider sort of their 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 phasing out piece to be called planning next steps team meeting. So here's what I think is important about how they've set this up. It isn't something that they convene for one student. Right. The, the idea here is we know that any given point in a school system, there are a number of students who are unwell. Right. Um, if, if we look at uh, or if schools are working together or if they're sort of looking at their caseload and what's happening, I imagine that most schools could get a sense of at any given point in time, how many youth do we have in some in some sort of temporary medical leave, right? We can right. It can be for all sorts of things. Right. So if we sort of move away from this concept of, oh, no, right, like Sarah had this thing and now we need to figure out who's supporting Sarah, but we look at it more from a, this is a chronic situation that we know we're going to keep having. Let's identify the key point people. Mm -hmm. What are our local area hospitals or partial providers? What does it look like for us to more intentionally schedule these things and then talk about the individual students who need care? So, you know, again, that model would be something that I think most school systems would say, yes, we'd like to do this. But then there's all the questions about infrastructure, pay, time, release time, right? If I'm in this meeting, who's watching my students? Right. Um, and then certainly um, I get asked this question often and I'm like, I don't know, I don't work in the hospital system, <laughs> but how does that get billed? Right. How is it right. getting billed mm -hmm. for right. the provider? Yep. What about the psychiatrist who's coming to this hour long meeting that doesn't fit within the structure of any of the billable right. things you're doing? This is indirect support. Right. So who's paying for it? So I, I share that that model, you know, as a, a collaboration that seems to be working well, that's sort of touching the idea of a university system who can really look at some research on what is and isn't working, right. a school system, right? A large school system, and then a hospital system that has the ability to evolve. And so ideally, right, your triad of Got that, right. right, the two who have to do the work and then the place that can sort of assess and reassess and provide information um, would be, you know, the unicorn, the, the, the great idea. <laughs> There's the idea. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you pointed out, you know, when you were doing, you know, back in, you know, doing your dissertation, like this, this concept of this space was like hardly, you know, has, has, st is still very unaddressed. 
as a story, as a space, as something like the point, you know, and Joanne, of course, in your school, this is going to happen, you know, in a specialized school, you're going to see it, you know, even a little more directly, but there's always kids in some varying degree of levels of need. And they're always going to be so that creating this idea of some system that brings those players together, bring those key people together on a, Mm -hmm. on a regular basis, create some story of that as a space that needs to chronically be addressed and understood and then to have the research to do, you know, a center that is doing the, in that case, doing the research to identify what's working and what's not working. I mean, absolutely. The dream. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the gold star that we all reach for, right? That we're all hopeful will come to keep fruition. Work, keep working on it. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So. But, but hopefully some schools could, if this, I mean, this is the ideal the platonic ideal this system could could implement some of those steps and just like you said you know there's a certain number of students who are in difficult situations um and and even if it's if they've missed school for a different other reason than mental health they still have to have some transition planning to come back so um just recognizing that and hopefully creating some space for counselors, teachers to participate and for the parents to feel like, or the caregivers to feel like, you know, somebody's got my, my child's interests in mind here. Yes. Um, Yeah. Specifically alone. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, So this is like you said, it's the dream. It's the goal. Um, But recognizing that it is, a multi-step process. It's not like, okay, you're discharged from the hospital. Monday, you're in school. Go you. You know? No, <laughs> it exactly. doesn't quite work. No, it, work it, it really, it really, it really, really, really doesn't work. <laughs> Could right? we say that another right? enough times? It doesn't work. Yeah. And so I mean, for the listeners, I encourage them to look up the Birch Project. Not again, there's there's all other sorts of projects that are doing great work as well. But I mentioned that one because again, of the triad of sort of institutions that are involved, yeah. but also mm-hmm. because they have it's like a tr- 25 page fillable PDF, okay, that has predetermined areas for different partners already where families can just go in and fill it out, right? So to this idea of the students back in school, they miss chemistry, they miss physics, they miss calculus, they miss Spanish. There's literally, like they can fill in each space and there is a physical form that they can print or they can take on the computer and they can sit with the teacher this is what I'm missing from this class. Okay. Right. We'll link that in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's why I mentioned that one because it's, it's not just right. Here are some steps. It's like, and here's the document, right. That goes along with this and everybody has a part. So if people don't do their parts, right, right. It doesn't work, but it's not all on the youngster who's right. trying to figure out how to survive. Yeah. And, and that's really, you know, from my opinion, what makes the, the psychiatric hospitalization so different from any of the other types of, of sort of temporary medical leaves, right? Like we see teens, you know, 
folks with childhood cancer, they have some other sort of major health issue. And it's not taboo for them to come back and say, I was out because, you know, I had surgery. But this element of like, like this almost idea of life was too hard and I couldn't handle it. On top of all the other teen stuff, like that's that's way too much. It's too much for us as adults, right? So how do we expect a teenager to be able to handle that conversation? Right. right. Yeah. That's right. So that's really nice. It's really scripted, spring-loaded to and to your point, Joanne, pieces that people can maybe pick and use some of that, uh, you know, all that work that's gone into that, you know, the ideal, not necessarily accessible, but, you know, pieces of it. So that is great. We'll definitely list that. I think that would be really valuable yeah. for for people to know about our listeners. Yeah. Right. So we have other topics to talk about. So I think we want to close off this section and say thank you, Dr. Springer, and tune in for part two. There was so much we wanted to talk to Dr. Springer about, we had to break it into two parts. So (laughs) because it's really important stuff. So we're signing off for now and we're coming back. So once again, thanks for listening and see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to like and follow.